Thanks for tuning in again, everybody. We're back with your favorite podcast, Lucas, Tigers, and Bronze. Oh, my. Luca Nation, we are blessed. We're very lucky today, and I'm really excited for our guest episode this week. It's with Lior Abidar. You know, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's the record buyer, and we're going to get into this a little bit more in the episode, of the $2.3 million LeBron exquisite card. And he's the founder of OnlyAlt.com, which I'm excited to learn more about here on today's episode. Lior, we're really excited to have you. Welcome to the Lucas Tigers and Bronze Oh My Show. I'm excited. How's everything going? How's your? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How's uh, how's everything going? What's going on in uh, in your world these days? Oh man, I'm back in San Francisco. I was in Miami for a little bit. Uh, things are starting to open up, so excited just to to be on here and do some things and get out of my home. Went to my first card show in a while, so things are good. Miami's having a card show May 1st, May 2nd, right? Yep, yep. What's the deal with uh, Silicon Valley? You know, all you guys are moving down to Miami now. Is it the no state taxes or the party scene? What's the deal? I think it was a temporary thing. I think a lot of people just got, honestly, probably bored or needed a change of scenery. Uh, I think a lot of people went uh, at the beginning of the year, but I, I feel like everybody's going back to, to the Bay Area or New York now. Not too many people left in Miami. That was, was the card show. I love it. Did you bring the LeBron with you and like three armed guards and like walk around with like, you know, yeah, hey, look, I'm the LeBron guy and just kind of like walk around holding it in front of you like this, like this is me. No. I, so I feel like now I can finally tell the story. The LeBron card was actually in my home for the longest time and I literally could not sleep at night. And so finally, like we have a big vault now in actually two different places. And so uh, all the big cards uh, are in one of those two locations. So as far away from possible from my home. So I can sleep well at night. <laughs> what, one of the cool concepts, and we're going to get into that purchase. We're going to get into the people, the community. And um, we're going to get into only all. But one of the cool things is cards like that. You know, I, I think of that as a piece of kind of museum art. You know, if you would ever go the route of fractional shares and, and you could retain ownership in fractional shares, it'd be cool to have these like kind of mini micro museums set up around the country where people could go view those cards, but also be investors in them. Yeah. Uh, Coming from the Bay Area, is that something you know you're working on, or you'd be interested in, in partnering or making happen? I am working on that. So my goal, and I, I think now that things are opening up, we can move a little bit faster. But I want to create these like museums of modern culture, like all these cards. Or at least when I was a kid, I always wanted to see them, right? And it's it's very different, like seeing them on a screen versus in person. I want to create a place where anybody can go and see some of these cards, and so. Uh, in an ideal world, we'll probably have that in a lot of different locations over the U.S., probably late 2021, early 2022. Uh, and so that anyone can come and see some of these rare LeBron cards or other crazy cards that we've purchased over the last year. So tell us a little bit about your background. So I know you're a University of Michigan grad. You live in the Bay Area. You're a founder of Only All. What's your background? Uh, what, what was Lior like as a kid? Ooh. Um, I started my career on Wall Street. Uh, I think you mentioned you did as well. My dad was a trader for the longest time. And so I've been exposed to that world since I was a kid. And I just, I love the idea that you can, I always like combining things. So like the finance and automation, like my dream was, hey, I can combine computer science and finance and create this machine that would just trade stocks or bonds all day long so that I can go and travel the world. And so since I was probably eight, I was like, I want to create this like uh, magic machine, right? This money making machine. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of where I went to Wall Street. I always say I like I did school wrong. Like if it wasn't a finance class or a computer science class, I never took it. Uh, and I was very just like single sided into to this vision. And, and I think actually like Wall Street started opening up my eyes. I realized that there was a lot more than just kind of making a money machine, uh, Culture mattered a lot to me. Community mattered a lot to me. And so I ended up leaving. I went to work at Amazon Web Services. Uh, I actually really enjoyed it. And for me, I would say like since then, I've really made my career just building a lot of like automation tools. I really enjoyed that. I'm, I'm still the CEO of Lob.com. I love that. We make a modern platform to send direct mail. So a lot of the mail that you get in your mailbox, I've probably helped those big companies automate it. And then outside of that, I, I would say like I'm known to find really weird ways to make money. Like I, I've loved eBay for the longest time. I love antique shops. I love the idea of buying low, selling high. And 
yeah, that's kind of what I do on, on, in my free time, just finding really strange things to buy and find a market for it. Cage kind of reminds me of you. I know you're on different coasts. You're on Long Island, but you've created a money-making machine and you're able to do it, you know, on vintage cards, on modern cards, on comics, on Pokemon. Kind of reminds me of you a little bit. Well, we both started on Wall Street. I did it a little different. In the 90s, I was on Wall Street also. But I had, uh, I had a showcase and I was selling my cards. Yeah. On Wall Street, right on Broadway and Wall, right on the corner. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, no baloney, man. The traders would come out there in their lunchtime, and you know there were there. It was it was the time before you even needed permits out there, and you know there were three four dealers out there. Some people would sell wax, and I'd I'd have a I, you know sometimes I would break wax or I'd go to card shows on the weekends and set up out there with a you know come over on the Staten Island ferry, walk up Broadway. You know it's only like uh you know a few hundred yards up from the ferry up to where everybody was setting up and sell cards, Jordans. I probably sold, I wish I had any of these back, but I probably sold, <laughs> you know, a couple thousand Jordan cards, but you know, nothing huge. Um, you know, early nineties, you can get Jordan, basically any pack you open the basketball cards. It was some form of Jordan insert yeah. base card, you name it in it. Um, and people would just, you know, they go nuts for those Jordan cards. Um, Shaq was huge at the time also when I was selling stuff. And, uh, but yeah, man, I mean, I love it. So I got to ask, man. So, 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 I have no idea. We're going to get into your company and that stuff. I had no idea who you were. No idea who you are, right? And I remember when the LeBron card was purchased for a record price. There was this, let's call it a murmur in the hobby, this kind of like, who bought that? Like, who, who bought that and why, right? Did you, so, so you know, after you, after you buy it, after you're the person, did you kind of hear that? And you were kind of sitting there going, you know, how do I make it known that it's me? Or was this all part of like a, grand master plan to think about that I, I don't think it was part of a grand master plan like i've been buying cards since 2016 and so every year i keep getting bigger and bigger cards because i'm like i tried these different strategies like i pc some things i try to flip some other things and i have these couple of strategies that every year i kept trying to go higher dollar amounts and like after five years i was just so sure that this market was going to explode and i thought to myself okay, this, I've literally tried it for the last five years. What is the number one card that if this market explodes would be the all-time best card, right? And so when I heard about that LeBron card, and by the way, I think two months earlier, the card had sold for like 700 something thousand. So I paid 2X for it because I didn't have the access for it. And it was just more that I was really bullish. Like I wasn't starting a company back then. I was just like, this, is, this market is about to explode. I want to own the best card. Uh, in the market. And so when we bought it, I, I do remember, you know, I, I'm in the community and in the hobby. So a lot of people were asking and I was asking people, should I buy this? What do you think it's worth? And I was like, okay, like we're, we're going to make it known that we're, we're buying this card because if I'm really trying to make the hobby get to the next level, I probably should let people know who's buying these things so that people start talking about it. Right. And sometimes I always question if I, if I never said that I had bought the card, would the market have gone up as fast as it has gone? And so I think it was just part, I really do think it's one of the best cards in the market that you can buy into. I think it's helping the hobby move forward. I love it. No, I mean, it's just one of those things that I wonder, you know, is it, was this a marketing idea? Because obviously think about the, 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 the advertising that comes with that. I mean, it's, you know, it's like wallpapering your car, with, you know, your company name or whatever it is. So, you know, like the, yeah. this is the guy, the company, the, that's the thing. But it sounds like you were just, you know, coloring up. You were just saying, all right, you know, uh, this is this year's version of my collection, which is pretty cool. I do like that coloring up. I mean, I think that led to a lot of different things. Like after that, I raised a fund to buy cards. I, you know, I'd, I'd invested with a lot of my friends. Like a lot of people do like go half and half with, you know, a couple of their friends and I'd done really well. Uh, and so just more and more people were like, wow, you bought that card. How have you done over the last 10 years? And, you know, I tell people it's my best investment out of anything that I've done. And I dabble in startups and stocks, bonds, other crazy asset classes. And I remember when I bought that card, I was telling people like my IRR over the last five years was 152%. And so that allowed me to go and raise a pretty large fund. And with that fund, the LeBron is in that fund. It was our first anchor card. We bought some pretty crazy cards uh, that we probably will be showcasing uh, over the next couple of months. So two questions, right, for our audience. One, what does the Indianapolis Railroad have to do with anything? What is IRR? Can I get a ride on this? Do I have to buy a ticket? And then two, more importantly, um, after you explain that to the idiots out there like me who are old and don't know what the hell that means, um, 
a fund, right? So we're going to talk about that fund. So tell me what IRR is, and then let me ask you about the fund. Yeah, so the IRR is just, you know, whatever time period. So I said five years. It's the average return over that time period. So on average, I made 152%. So I was more than doubling my money every single year for the last five years. So it's, a, it's Is that IRR. annualized? Yes. It's annualized, yeah. Gotcha. And that's just in sports cards? Just in sports cards. 152%. Just in NBA. Just in NBA. And, and if, I would, a big part of that was Kobe Bryant, I would say. I was before big... we get into the, the fund, is that something, and I'm um, listen, you know, I have it ringing in my brain, the, you know, past performance does not dictate future performance, and there's all this, you know, language that gets in there, but is that something you, you feel is, is something you can replicate year over year going forward? I do think I can replicate that. I, I don't know if it'll hold up at a higher dollars at that exact same rate, but I do think that I can beat the S&P 500 by a magnitude. Uh, and so it is an emerging, I mean, that was big. The big theme for raising the fund is I think I can beat the S&P 500. I think I can buy the, I have the access and now the means to go and buy some of the world's best cards. Uh, and I, I think I can, I think I can do it for the next five years. Okay. So tell me about the fund now, right? So the fund is, and this is important, Luke and Asian, listen to this guy, because, you know, Andrew was the first person I heard talking about this. And we talk about the, the, the strength of the hobby, the backbone of the hobby, you know, the, uh, the growth. And he was the first one to talk about the difference between retail and institutional investors, right? And how that applies to our hobby. That's just stocks. It applies to what we're doing here, the collecting world, right? And there's different money coming in, and that different money coming in moves the needle in different ways. I can buy as many Devontae Graham cards as I can get my hands on, but I'm not moving the needle as much as a fund is going to move the needle, right? So talk to me about the fund. How did it start? You know, without without you know talking about who's in it per se, is it people? Is it institutional money? You know, tell me a bit about that, and you know how that came to pass. Was that before the LeBron? Was the LeBron the reason to create the fund? You know, let's get into that a little bit if you can. Yeah. Well, it started from two things to move the hobby forward. I I, I compare a lot of cards to crypto, right? And it took crypto probably seven years, maybe even eight years, to for institutional money to really come in and recognize yeah. it. And once the institutional money came in, you saw so much liquidity and you saw the market starting to stabilize, right? It was, it was a real market, right? And so, you know, looking at that, how could I get the card market to where crypto did, but instead of taking seven years, can I do it in two, three years to really kind of help the ecosystem? And so I needed a way to connect the institutional market with the retail market. Right now, I would say probably for the last, I don't know, 20 years, it's just retail investors. We all do it for a hobby. I would call it the hobby, right? And so I just saw an opportunity to start kind of combining that. Like when you go to a Fidelity or a Schwab or any of these people on Wall Street who manage money, they don't know too much about cards. Maybe they'll see it on ESPN after the LeBron purchase, but they do not know how to go and figure out which card to buy. And so that created an opportunity. And so I know it's very like controversial, like is the fund you know good for the hobby? I, I think it is. So you know, with the LeBron and having invested with a lot of friends, I basically utilized that to say, you know what, I, I think I could probably do this with a bigger set of capital, I'll put in a lot of money myself, I'll get a lot of friends and institutional money to come in. And we'll start buying some of these really large cards to showcase uh, that these IRR, the you know, the returns actually do hold up at scale. And this is something that is a true asset class over a long period of time. And so one, not only if I could hold up the returns, it would help stabilize and kind of help everybody in the community. And so I always, you know, am curious when people say, oh, like the institutional money is coming in. I'm like, your collection just probably went up 100x over the last two years, right? Would you prefer to not have that? And so I, I do think that that's probably, there are two types of people in the community right now. There are people who have the passion for it. And if it went down, they really would still be collecting. But I do think that the majority of people, the reason they like the hobby is because it's their passion in sports and they can make money from it right? If you remove the ability to make money, I think less people would be interested. And I think we just need to lean into that and stop pretending that like this isn't good. It's, it's actually really great, right? Like the, all the institutional money, if it were to leave, all the prices would go down, right? And so I think we want more money to come in. It'll just stabilize things. And so year after year, yes, it's going to be a lot harder to get every single card. Like you're not going to be able to get every single like gold prism of LeBron for $20 like you could 10 years ago. But it means that when you get something in five years, if you want something new, you can probably sell it for more money that you bought it for. So that's a great point to end the, the, the fund idea on. And it's <clears throat> part of the reason I asked about the, the 152% annualized return IRR over the last five years 
and you're, you're, you're telling your folks that is, you know, one of the questions we get the most from our listeners, people who are, haven't been in this five years, I mean, you have a track record, you, you, you put that out there in your prospectus, you know, yep. I don't know, I don't know whether or not the fund is something that's been regulated at all, whether or not it's, you know, whether or not you got like, what would it like a rig nine or I don't know what would, what would, you know, 40 bond act maybe would potentially govern it. I don't, I don't know. And we don't, we don't have to get really that deep into it. But um, the question that, that, that we get asked the most is it's gone up as much as it's gone up. So if you do 152% a year over five years, it means, you know, you, your stuff has more than 10 X, right? Your stuff is more than 15 X. I mean, you know, cause it's 152, 152, it's multiple multiples, right? So, 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 the people who are getting into it in the last year or two, they say, you know, I'm buying a car that's already 10, 20 X what it was a year or two or three ago. Am I an idiot for buying into this now? Can those, am I going to be the one who's buying high and selling low? And what do you say to people like that? Because I'm sure that's a question that you have if you're talking to legitimate, you know, institutional investors too. Yeah. So it's, you know, the past performance does not indicate future success. However, the fund is six months in and I am pacing towards that return already. Right. And so we haven't been around that long. I'm, I actually deployed the, the entire first fund already. Uh, I'm launching a second fund to do the exact same thing again, just given a lot of people want interest and they kind of have seen the performance. I, I do think it will hold up. I equated a lot. You know, I've done a lot of diligence in the space. And I think this idea of true scarcity is a reason why people are there's so much demand in this space. I think the second one that people don't talk enough about is this 25 year effect. In, in all different assets over the last 100 years, your prime years of collecting are between the ages of 8 to 14. And then generally, you start getting disposable income in your 30s. And so once you get that disposable income, you want the things that you couldn't have as a kid, right? It's just like a rinse repeat pattern. And so 1996 was a really interesting year for cards, right? It's, and I focus on 1996 because cards have been around for a long time. 96 was not only Kobe Bryant's rookie year, but it was the first year that they had serial numbered cards, a true scarcity, not, oh, we think this is like a super short print, like literally on EX credentials, there was out of 500 and legacy was out of 150. It was the first time. And so 25 years from then we get 2021, right? And so I think since then, obviously the manufacturers have learned, Panini has learned, Tops has learned. If you put true scarcity, it's going to function like art. It's going to function like cryptocurrency, Right. It's also the first year of Topps Chrome, by the way, 96. Also the first year of Topps Chrome. Though if they would have, no, if they would have numbered it, that year would have been, you know, ex, like so much higher. Like I don't, it's, I've never bought the 1996 Topps Chrome rookie refractor of Kobe Bryant just because it's not Kobe's best card. Um, it's an iconic card, but in terms of value, it's not going to grow that much because there's too many out there. It's funny too because numbering was starting to come into the hobby. I don't know what a hobby historian you are, but other companies were doing it. So I'll show I'll show a card that came in the mail today. It's pretty funny. It's a leaf card from nineteen ninety six. Pretty cool Ken Griffey Jr. card. And it's numbered on the back. It's nineteen ninety six leaf and it's out of five thousand. So not exactly the most scarce card in the world, but you know, it's nine sixty three out of five thousand. Before that, if you were to take a look at some cards, so nineteen ninety five Pinnacle Zenith. Pinnacle was ultimately bought by Select, and you know it's now part of like a Panini Select kind of thing, right? But in 1995, if you check out Zenith uh, football cards, um, they call it Marshall Falk rookie, but it was actually put in '95. He's a '94 rookie, but there were cards in there that were numbered, so there's numbers on the back of the cards, but it doesn't have an individual number. So like there's um, Z teams and. Um, and rookie roll calls, and they had them also in like the '94, and it would say one of. Yeah, it's like the net pro. Yeah, but it wouldn't yeah, say yeah, the yeah. actual number. It would say one of. So, so they were trying to create that scarcity, but they weren't individually numbered yet. The only one that I knew that did it with individual numbers, and they even some of them had one of classic in like their four sport, their draft pick stuff. Their yep. autograph cards were individually like hand numbers, but the other cards, like the gold foil, would say one of thirty six thousand, whatever it was. So yeah. it's crazy. That's I've I've not actually thought about that. That the individual like numbered cards. Yeah, you you, know? you seem to probably know even more than I do. Whoever came up with that concept, I think without that, that the hobby would not be where it is today. Uh, and so for me, like the serial number part of it is just like critical. And by one the of way, the things I'm most yeah, and just a quick for, for our listeners who are, who are listening to Lior, it's a great point because one of the bigger questions, not just hey, can it can it survive, is is junk wax. You know, hey, late eighties, early nineties, 
the, the, the cards, they, they produced them so much and then it, it, it fell off a cliff. And why is this different from that? Well, none of those cards were numbered. Huge thing. So, I mean, it's, it's another thing to add into that point, right? That card numbering, that, that creation of scarcity and the scarcity that's right there numbered on your card didn't exist in that first junk wax era. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it's one of the reasons I, I, I just bought my first Pokemon card, but I haven't been buying like Pokemon for the longest time. Show us. Show us. Come on. Let's see it. I got to charge my computer, but um, special delivery, special delivery. So this one, I'll, I'll tell you why I bought it. I think it's, it's quite interesting. So I don't know if you can see what it says, I have, but I have a couple okay. at PSA. Is there a swirl on there? You got like swirl. So it's, um, it has mail. I don't on. know if you heard page PSA shut down. <laughs> it, this one, this one I liked because it has like mail on it, which obviously like lob my first business. Um, you know, we send a lot of mail and cards. So I just felt like it combined all the things that I've been doing for the longest time, just in like one, in one cool thing. And it's a PSA 10, but the only reason I bought it. And I, this is, I would say like the, the most important part is the card I saw was trading on eBay for $1,500 and whoever priced it, priced it at $1,200. So without me knowing that it was, you know, I would get a $300 arbitrage. I don't know if I would have bought the card. So you are a little background on that card, just so everybody knows what he's holding up there couple months ago pokemon center where you can buy cards on uh you know pokemon cards they release that was a giveaway that they did believe it or not it was if if you spent twenty dollars on their site on the day of that released wow you, you got that card for a twenty dollar purchase i'm a dummy because i bought two hundred dollars worth of stuff it was right before christmas and whatnot and i and I, I found out after the fact that if you if you broke it up into ten twenty dollar transactions you got ten you of could them? have gotten ten of them oh my god so i'm just a real big dummy but here's why yours is going to be worth what it's worth and why it continues to go up in value because it has basically just straight shot. It was delivered in the boxes with all the cards kind of bouncing around with like Christmas ornaments and whatever else you ordered from Pokemon Center in a, in a little plastic like yes. this, like a little plastic kind of thing like this. Not exactly, you know, kept in great order. And we've had several of them sent into us through our Luca Nation sub. And, you know, a lot of them have, you know, thin corners, little issues with them and stuff like that. So tens are really tough to come by in those. It's, it's a cool card. And people really, really seem to like that one. Yeah. Nice one. Oh, cool. And I love that it says happy delivery on it. Yeah. First Pokemon card for me. So, you know what I'm excited about? So one way to grow the hobby is more people buying cards, but another way is more investment, more angel investing, right? And you're seeing that come from the Silicon Valley, you know, Starstock, Dibs, Top Shot, all of these companies, you know, they're getting funding. And that's really exciting because, I mean, if you just take it back, uh, when I lived in the Silicon Valley, I worked for this company called Jumio, which actually does ID verification for Top Shot. We met with Robinhood in 2014. We met with Coinbase in 2014 to help them do ID verification. Mm -hmm. Look at Robinhood at Coinbase now, yeah. five, six years down the road. So same thing's going to happen with these companies. And angel investing gives them opportunity to hire developers, hire a better team have more of a, a burn rate or have more of a track uh, to go and do things, you're in the thick of things. So could you talk to me a little bit about uh, angel investing? But more importantly, I'd love to hear about only all, you know, for the people out there that haven't heard about it, but probably should. Yeah. So uh, alt is basically a way to invest in cards as easy as stocks. And so I've seen, I mean, you guys have seen it too. Like I have been buying on eBay for the longest time, auction houses, and there are just so many problems. And I'm just, I always wondered, like, why can't, why hasn't someone built something to solve these problems? And so for the longest time, I actually was trying to, I called all these companies like, hey, you should do X, Y, and Z. Like, I'm, I've never been shy of sharing my opinion and no one would listen. And so I, I built all to really solve those problems. So at, at a core, if this is going to, if, if cards are going to be a true asset class, the transaction fee has to go down, right? We're paying 12.5% on eBay. We're paying 3% for, you know, goods and services when we're doing it through Instagram paying 20, 25% if we're using any of these auction houses, right? That that doesn't need to be the case. So we came in and we said, hey, the future is going to be really um, liquid. And so the fees are probably going to be really low. So we're coming in at one and a half percent. The second part is, I don't know about you guys, but there's so much fraud in this industry and it sometimes takes away from the fun. Like I, I remember like selling cards and then the player gets injured and then all of a sudden I'm getting a bunch of returns, right? I'm like, well, if I got if I'm buying Apple before Apple earnings and it, I'm wrong, I can't return my stock, right? Like, and so you need to build the financial like un, like literally the exchange underneath so that 
it just settles right away and there are no returns. And it sounds so simple. And I feel like everybody has been complaining about it for years and no one has done anything. And so I, we just built it out. You can list something on alt. We have it in custody already. So we, you have nice pictures. You don't have to worry about someone not sending it to you. And then when you pay for the card, the money goes directly to the seller that instant. And then you get the card and you can withdraw it at any point in time. And so it just makes the buying and selling process a lot easier. And with that, we can actually do a lot of really cool things. So we plan on introducing like trading and margin so that you can actually buy cards if you just have cards in your portfolio. So, it, so that's two questions. One, for the old people out there like me listening, because there's a lot of alt out there. Everybody's talking about alt. Um, for me, alt was like one of the first supermodels, Carol alt. But that's not yeah. what we're talking about here. So where can Alternate they find investment cage. Where can they find your alt? Yeah, at onlyalt.com. Onlyalt.com. Okay, guys. So remember, onlyalt.com. And the second part of this is I got to ask, right? Because if it's a trader mentality, will there be a time where you can short the assets? Uh, I don't know. So shorting is tough because I think shorting adds efficiency to the market, but it's dangerous, right? It's a, such a dangerous financial concept that we've seen, you know, especially yep. with GameStop and Robinhood. You need to know exactly what you're doing. There's an education gap. And so is that the right thing to introduce for cards right away? I don't know. If the market becomes efficient enough and we can really do it in a safe way and make sure that people aren't using harm uh, in terms of this like financial product, maybe. But I think right now we're really trying to just, it, it's just you buy, no, no, sh no short selling. Correct me if I'm wrong, just real quick on short selling. The benefit is it adds liquidity, it adds efficiency to the market, but the downside is, for example, let's say you buy a card, your, your potential loss is just your initial investment. With short, you have unlimited potential investment because the card could go, in theory, to an infinite price. Yeah, well, that's definitely it, but they're just the market dynamics allow for a lot of manipulation too, right? So like a short squeeze as an example. Like, I don't know how I would think about it with rare cards. If there's only a pop one, and you short a pop one, right? How do you actually deliver <laughs> that asset? So I, I think there will be some really interesting things over time. Like we'll introduce like indices, like the alt 100, the alt 500, uh, so that people can actually see what a broad-based index is looking like. And maybe that could be something that you can buy and sell and it can settle in cash. But I, I think we're ways away. Like we can't go to like, you know, when we look at the market return, it's, we can't jump to like a thousand right away. We got to take baby steps. And I want to build something that's safe. Like I want it to be fun. I would say particularly in cards, you have more kids who are actually in this space than the stock market. Uh, and so I, I really want to make sure that I'm building something that is fun and not financially dangerous for people. Is it safe to coin this, this current season in the card hobby as cards are basically going from a good to an asset? And in the middle, you need businesses that enable that, right? Because for the longest time, people even say, it, how much money did you spend on a card? But if you buy Apple stock, you're like, how much have you invested in Apple? Even the terminology exactly. is different. And we're in the season where that's changing. Yeah, I think you hit it spot on. I'm, I'm really trying to change that, even not calling it collectibles, but alternative assets, right? There's, there's some lingo that we want to keep. And so it'll find its own middle ground. But it, it is an, an I, I really think it's an investable asset. I think foremost... It, it, this is something that I have put the majority of my money in over stocks and bonds, and I'm going to continue doing it. I think a store of value and culture is a utility product, and I'm trying to find more and more ways to actually make this so that they're actually productive assets. Meaning if this card, you know, pull up a different card. This is my Dwayne Wade card that I just bought. If this card could spit mm. out dividends in some way, shape or form, everyone in the world would be flocking to this asset, Right. And I have a couple of unique ideas on how to make sure or how to try out that this can actually spit out a dividend. So you can, can get we talk about that. So let's Zed run. So Zed run was super interesting because I watched the interview with Darren Ravel and the founder. I think he's Australian. If you really think about it, right, you can buy a horse or you can invest in a horse. And the dividend is people gambling on the actual horse races, right, on the utility of it. So I just saw this today. It's like a half-baked thought, but I wanted to bring it up because that's a really interesting form of a dividend, right? If you kind of think about it. Yeah. I mean, my thought, and again, long-term, we talked about this kind of pop-up idea where like you can actually go and see cards, right? If, if you equate a card to an art piece, how does an art piece make money? Well, they loan it to museums, right? Literally, you loan it, right? And you are getting paid for people to go and see it. 
And I think cards are at a point where they have such cultural significance that people would go and pay to see some amazing collections, right? And if you display them in the right way and you can put some fan experiences around it, people would go and attend those events. And those, the revenue from those events are really the dividends or the assets of, of that event. And so I think it'll take time to put it all together, but I, I do think like the Le LeBron card, particularly, it has a loan value associated with it. People would come and see it. Now, if you take a base card, I don't know if people will come and see it, but that's that's the real point is that certain cards have a much higher appeal than, you know, some of these like base prism cards. One of the things that, you know, Cage, he's he's had success in the hobby. He's built up a really nice collection over the last few years, but he's uh, he came from being a like a little guy, right? And he is always concerned about the little guy, especially with PSA uh, suspending service. And one of the things that recurring theme we have is, you know, the little guy can't color up. You know, the little guy's kind of getting squeezed. He's getting priced, he or she is getting priced out of these really, really valuable assets. And they're long, no longer able to, you know, buy a, a raw card, send it to PSA, get it graded, sell it and keep coloring up. You know, you came into this in 2016, but let's fast forward five years. You're getting into the hobby right now. You have 1,500, 500 bucks, 5,000, let's even say, what are you doing? What, what are some of the first moves you're making? Yeah, I mean, we definitely want to make sure that people can color up. Like that concept I actually think is really important. This is why I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in the grading space. You can't charge $50 or $100 to get a card graded. You got to allow people, I remember when it was $7, right? That's what I was doing. I was sending every single card I could for $7 and 4Xing my money and coloring up, right? Um, I was literally going buying on raw on eBay, sending to PSA. And now you can't even buy raw because, you know, the new prison boxes were $2,000. So can I add one little thing? Because people just hear, I send it to PSA, I get 4X. But there's, people don't understand this. There's the risk of time. So you, you're getting compensated for the risk of how long your card is out there because you're holding a player that could get injured. So you're not just getting 4X return. You're taking on risk. Sorry about that. I just want to clarify. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point. And not every card, I, you, you make money. Sometimes you... You know, even with the grading, the, the player is no longer and you're, you're losing money. It's very volatile. But yeah, I, I think a lot of things are going to have to change. Like I try to think about like what the, what the card world is going to look like in two years. I do think that there's going to be a lot more new grading companies so that there are different segments of the market because you don't want to be able to go and have to pay $200. Uh, I also think the distribution mechanism of cards is going to change. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I always love the kind of Charlie and the chocolate men, like factory mentality. Like I always went to Target, right? You go to Target, you get a blaster box. Or back then it was just a box. You open it up and you find these awesome cards. And I feel like we're moving away from that. And I think that's really bad, right? Because not, not everybody can go and, you know, there's not, a hop, there's not a local card shop in every area. And it needs to be fair. It needs to be random. It needs to be, again, like this Charlie and the chocolate factory type thing. Like anybody needs to be able to buy a candy bar for a dollar and somehow, you know, find that, you know, Zion Williamson gold. Right. And so I really hope that that concept doesn't go away. I really hope that they don't start auctioning off single cards. I think that would be the worst thing that we could do to the hobby. And so I, I think a lot has to, we have to innovate. There has to be new manufacturers in the space. Uh, and I think if, if Panini doesn't start changing, someone else will come in and innovate. Speaking of innovation, what is somebody like you who's staking their reputation on a fund, which right now is a fund of tangible assets, completely funded, and a second fund of tangible assets? What do you think of the, uh, you know, the NFT craze? You're going to add some of those to the fund? Is that going to be something you're going to leave for somebody else? Um, you know, is that where you see potentially some of the hobby money going over the next couple of years? Talk to me about that because I know obviously yeah. you are somebody who researches the hell out of all this stuff. So yeah, I know I mean, you've probably – dive into that a little bit well, he, he's yeah. next door neighbors with roham so they, they talk about this all the time uh, i mean they always say like invest in what you understand right i understand cards really well i have gone really deep in into top shot and nfts and i think like my at least my current state of thought is i think nfts are actually going to do well long term but right now people don't understand the true concept of an nft and so like i went in and i was just mind boggled by like the whole concept and you know, I started learning about the metaverse. Have you guys like started? I didn't even know about that, right? So like, you know, there's this shared concept that people believe that we're going to have kind of the shared virtual reality in the future. And a lot of people don't know when, but the probability of that happening, I think is increasing. And every so- Every day. Every, every day single, we're closer. Every, did, we, did we say meta, meta world peace is investing? <laughs> <laughs> 
that world. No, I, I heard that wrong. Sorry. I said the Spider Verse. So, like, there, there's the so much underneath it to to actually understand it, and so like I think like the current state of the world is okay. There's this new world that is emerging. Okay, I get that. I can actually believe that we're heading there, and so now. But the next part that I'm lost is I, I equate it to like going to Mars. Like okay. We're not on Mars yet. We're going to Mars. But for some reason, the first thing that someone wanted to create was the gift shop on Mars. And we're all buying like the stuff from the gift shop. And there'll be in the future where there's actual utility to NFTs. And I'm hearing a lot of really great applications to it. But this one, the ones that we have don't seem like the ones that have utility. And so, and I'm generally a pioneer. So I'm just going to wait it out a little bit more. Uh, you know, for me, at least I've been investing in the NFT companies. That's been kind of my play. But in the actual NFTs themselves, I just I don't find the utility. I don't see it as a collector type thing. I hear there's a game associated with it. I just it's not for me yet. Do I think it's going to be an emerging market? Absolutely. I just I'm waiting for the thing that's like, that's the one thing I want to buy. I think that's a big thing, Cage. I don't know if you heard that as well. We've talked about this. The collector, right? Right now, NFTs are 99.9% .9 for the flippers. But there's no incentive to hold. There's no incentive to collect long term. How would you fix that? You know, let's say you you were made CEO of company XYZ that makes NFTs that has them licensed. How would you add that a feature utility so that people wanted to hold them long term? Ooh. Sorry to put you on this. I yeah, I, I mean, I think the NFTs right now they're like static. We're going like super deep. They're, they're, they can't do anything, right? Like you can't an NFT can't interact with another NFT. I can't right? answer it. You're right. 100% right. You're right. right. You had a great, the gift shop is a great analogy, right? Because you're right. I mean, people have focused on that. Oh, this is what I want to have when we're there. But we're not focusing on how we get there. And I think really the, the first NFTs, the stuff that we're talking about now, they always have to be hybrid between an NFT and something tangible. I think to get us there until we get to Mars you have to have something that has a tangible use to it. So for like NBA Top Shop, if I were an advisor of, of that that token, that that NFT, I would be bridging the gap to Mars with something tangible. Like I would say, all right, if you if you get Mark Cuban to invest, and I think he's already talking about NFTs like crazy, right? And the other, you know, NBA licensing. What I would what I would do is, you know, anybody who has a hundred NFTs of Dallas Mavericks, maybe they get to buy uh, Mavericks tickets a day early, you know, and that they use their token to get access to that. Or maybe there's an NFT Top Shot lounge at their stadium where you have to flash one of your tokens to get in and get access to it. Now, that is, you know, it's a little different than the Oasis of Ready Player One where the, there'll be some utility down the road for, right? Um, I'm an old man, so I, I think I'm making sense, Lior, but I might you're not. Making, making, I'm following, you're a hundred, yeah, I'm so, you know, so, you know more than I do on this. So, but I think to bridge that gap, you kind of have to have some utility in the real world right now attached to these things. If, if I were the advisor, that's what I would be doing. Lior, though, the way we found out about Top Shot was we do a weekly segment with Coffee and Cage. This was like early, very early, maybe the first week in January. Someone asked us about it. And I think what makes us different than other podcasts is we treat this a lot like a fireside chat. You know, we're trying to, through conversation, through dialogue, through disagreement, hey, Bitcoin has no application, explain it to me like I'm a two-year-old, Cage said once. Uh, through that friction, through that conversation, we try to educate our audience. I think that makes us a little different. So I appreciate you taking, stepping up and taking that challenge. Yeah, man, I, I know it wasn't an easy too. question. Especially because I still don't get it. Somebody created cage coins for me today. That was pretty nice of them. I don't know what the hell is going on here, but you know now people are buying and selling me in some bit clout world. I don't know what the hell is going on. Every, I mean, this is the thing. I think everyone is creating an NFT right now. There's no, there's no barrier, right? And so I, I think until there's a real utility, we can differentiate from like just regular like tchotchkes. Like, <laughs> like I get like, how do you go into a gift shop and know what's real and what's not real, right? Like I've been into those museum, you know you know, gift shops, like half the stuff you're like, what am I ever going to do with this? You it's must true. have a Yiddish grandma. Only, I, only Yiddish grandmas use tchotchke. It's one of my favorite words. Yeah. Someone else used it and it caught on, especially when I was thinking, I was just like, this is all going to be garbage stuff one day. We, we were worried about Panini being the junk wax arrow, but NFTs are actually going to be the junk wax arrow oversupplied. Yeah. Who knows? I could be wrong. I've been wrong on a lot of different things. It just, I know it's not for me yet. That's kind of where I've been putting it.
How old are you, Lior? You you have a old. We have wisdom, but you're. you're what are you? Thirty? Thirty-five? I'm I'm your age. No, I'm thirty-two. Wow, very cool, very cool. So you said you know we just had a. I mean we had HGA on grading. We had CSG just recently. Do you think? Do you see a world with grading companies? You know that there's one, two, or maybe three grading companies, or do you see it kind of uh, segmented and you know there's ten, but they're all kind of have their own niches. I don't think there's 10. I think there's probably three. I mean, it, there could be 10 if they're uh, authenticating different assets, but there's always going to like the standardization uh, of assets. Like we like that they're all in this case. It actually means something. If they all become de-standardized, we're going to start losing values really quickly because we won't be able to price things. So I'm hoping that it's always going to stay within a group of three. And I think because of the market, like market dynamics, there will. I do think there's a lot of opportunity right now for somebody to come in and easily be number one, two, or three. Like the thing that makes no sense to me is like, this is plastic, right? Like we, someone could create a better material. There's paper, this the label here is paper, right? We can, we can do better than that, right? There's no consistency. And so I think there's, there's really low hanging fruit, especially with all the innovation happening. Somebody's gonna come in and start doing something. So that's a, great, that's a great lead, right? Because here you are somebody who's an investor in a fund right but obviously you have cards and slabs in that fund from the major power players in that so to somebody out there who's hearing this and they're thinking about it becoming one of that top three trying to get into it now because of all the problems you just mentioned in the first half hour of this episode what would it take for you as the person who controls what you, your fund invests in what would it take for that company to have enough credibility to you buy a card in one of their slabs Somebody Number one, it might not be PSA right now, right? Okay. Yeah. Consistency in grading. What I mean by that is if I take a card and I break it out and assuming I didn't damage the card and I did that 10 times, I should get the same grade. And I have done that with Beckett and PSA and I get sixes, nines, and sometimes tens on the exact same card. I do it with low end cards because I like measuring data. So consistency on grading. The second one is I want it to look good, right? Like right now, I give this maybe a four or a six out of 10. Right? It's, not, it's not bad, but the materials are probably like low end. We can probably do at this day and age some higher materials. And then on the inside too, I think like the, the paper, like we can at least use like, like high end plastic. Um, so I think just like making it look better would probably have a, a, a bigger appeal. Where does, where does your HGA rank on your slabs and design I, and as a company, if they're on your I, radar? I, I haven't used, I haven't bought anything from them yet. Um, I'm pretty much a PSA guy. I think they're at least trying to innovate. I don't know if I agree with every decision that they've been making so far, but I'm seeing changes. Like the one that scares me the most is Beckett, to be completely honest. Like I'm just not hearing them do like, you know, there was that whole rumor that people were faking slabs in China and they're like, just check the case. <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, that was really scary. And then I started hearing rumors that when they do BGS tens, they literally grade all the gem mints and they're like, okay, we have a 10% quota. We just got to choose a couple. And I was like, okay, that, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence. So uh, I think people need to be a little bit more transparent about the process. I think it will build a lot of confidence in the community, but staying silent really scares me. So I, I stopped buying any BGS black labels or BGS tens to be completely honest until someone tells you me that never... it's a real thing. Right. And how they know that it's real. Like, is it like top 5% of cards top one? Like, tell me the logic that you utilize to be able to go and get the, the difference between a nine, five and a 10. Do you want to tell them how Eric Myers, who was the owner of the Black Label Topps Chrome, Kobe Bryant got a ten? He just he just bumped it. He bumped three cards. The Tim Duncan uh, was a, a ten. Two Kobe refractors were a ten. He bumped them. They all got black labels. And what, what is, is this idea? Special, well, that's the thing, right? So I think it, what it is, you have to send in a special envelope. It's called the Ben Franklin ten, and so Ben Franklin has to be in the envelope ten different times for you to get that bump. I think that's what it's like, this green envelope, you know, like a whole, like, I'm just kidding, obviously, guys. It's a great trade. But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, but that's the thing, right? And Lior's mentioned it, too. I've done it. I've sent the same card in a bunch of times, gotten a bunch of different grades on it from a bunch of different places. And I've sent the card in that was sitting in a slab that was a nine. It came back from another house trimmed. I sent it back into the old house. It comes back trimmed. I sent it back to the first place. It comes back a nine. I mean, it's just I had that, I had that exact same thing happened. It's insanity, me. you know. I mean, and and you're right. It does it kills some of your stuff. And I, I'm saying this, and I'm I'm I, I, 
I just bought a SGC gold label pop one of one on a card. It's my first SGC, you know, gold. I, I'm, and I'm listening to you and I'm like, why did I do this? You know, like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool crazy. card. You bought yeah, the card, not the grade. It's, it's cool true. Card. It's true. But Leo, so, I mean, in, in respect for time, uh, how are we doing on time? We, we have five, five minutes. I'm, I'm on you guys. I'm good for nice. how long. It, oh. That means he's I'm, having fun. Yes. He gave you that whole, like, I, I'm hey, having I gotta a be out here by then because, you know, if we sucked, he needs to, you know, he needs to have a backdoor escape. So, so far, this is good. We get a vote of confidence. We don't suck. I love it. <laughs> how can we support you with only all, with alt? I know it's only alt.com, but how can we, how can we and Luca Nation support uh, your business and be a part of what you're doing? Yeah. So here's what I would tell everybody who's listening. Try it out and give us the hard feedback. Like one of the things that at least I am hopefully good at, at startups is I want to hear the feedback and I want to iterate, iterate on fixing it. I want to do that over and over and over again, right? If you keep telling us stuff and we keep fixing it, I think we're going to get the product into a really good state. And I think this sounds really simple, but this is where almost all companies do it wrong. Like all their customers are telling them the problems and they don't fix anything, right? And so that's like my big thing. Give us the hard feedback, right? Give us, you know, tell us, hey, this could be better. I wish you did X, Y, and Z. And we want to respond and we want to iterate. So give it to us hard. Like we're, we're not here to, to, for you guys to be easy on us. Like I want, I want to be like, tell us what would, what would make your life easier. And so I'd encourage just everybody to try it out, be open-minded. And if you don't like it, at least tell us why. I won't be, I won't be offended. I think what makes Luca Nation unique is we, we're, we're experiential in nature, right? So every time something does come out, our plea to Luca Nation isn't to put your entire wallet and your entire bankroll into that. Put five bucks in, put 10 bucks in, play around, create an account. Just so go to onlyalt.com and create an account and play around with it. We've done that with Starstar, we've done Top Shot, we've done it with Dibs. We do it with all the platforms because whether or not you're going to be a long-term customer, you're going to learn things that help you uh, as an investor. So I highly recommend it. Cage and I practice what we preach. Yeah. What's the next? Go ahead, Leo. I was going to say the one thing I think we do really well right now that no other platform does is data. We've, we've really tried to make sure that we have the best data out there. And so we haven't released our, our research product yet, but if you put in a card, we'll tell you all the transactions across all the platforms. So that's eBay, the auction companies, we're, we're adding more and more. And so at the end of the day, we're utilizing that data, we're, we're cleaning it so that we can come up with the alt value, uh, which is a, a nice, easy way to know what something is worth. And so over time, we really want to make sure that that data is world-class. And I know like eBay has a lot of noise on it. You don't know what's getting paid for. The line strikes through it. What was the actual price? Well, we go through it to the extra level and say, okay, if it, if they, if it was the best offer, here was the actual best price. So on basketball already, we are better than anything out there. And then on football and baseball, by the end of next month, we should be the best out there as well. So you're a basketball guy. Starting to uh, spread that out into anything else, or are the returns only going to be 152% basketball? No, we did. So uh, in the fund, we did, I think it was 80% basketball, 15% football, and then 5% baseball and other. If you look just historically, basketball just outpaces everything. Why do you think that is? I think the product is the best. I think the NBA has done the best job basically bringing the most demand to their product, right? They've expanded internationally. Football and baseball, baseball has, football hasn't. And so I think basketball is just have a really good international high quality product. A lot of people want, want to be associated with it. A lot of people play it. A lot of people want memorabilia or some aspect associated with it. No room in the fund, or maybe this is fund 3.0 for an emerging market type of fund. You're going to be putting 10% in uh, NASCAR, 10% in soccer, 10% in uh, UFC or combat sports, anything like that on the horizon. That's what I'd be doing. So well, this is the other. This is the other part, right? Like we're always trying to learn what's new. Like I recently bought a ton of F1 cards, right? The Dynasty product came out. You know, it's new. I want to test it out, right? I want to see how good the paper stock is, right? If I go get it graded, what is it going to come back as? Right. I want to learn who who like if I'm putting it up and trying to sell it, like who who's actually interested in this. Right. And so I'm always trying new things. I'm, I'm open minded enough to know that I can't get stuck in, in something that I think is is just the right thing. I got to evolve. Right. Uh, and so I'm, I'm always trying different things. UFC, tennis, bought a lot of like women's soccer cards recently. Like I've been trying to get a lot of Alex Morgan cards that one, those I would be, too. Those are so hard to get in a PSA 10. That's been my like my only thing. Like I keep sending them to PSA and I get a 
PSA four auto six, and I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, because it's four and six is a ten. Just sell it yeah. as a PSA ten question mark. <laughs> one, one, one. Leor, let me ask you, what are your thoughts about influencers in the space? So I loved your uh, interview with uh, Lefko. Amazing. Lefko's on this side. He's like, you know, I love the hobby. Let's promote it, but let's not show cards, right? Because we're pumping values. On the other hand, we have guys who are influencers who are showing cards, but they have every right to. At the same time, if you did that with stocks, right? Like you tweeted, if you were a big influencer and tweeted Tesla, you could get banned. You could get some really serious trouble. How do you view that? What do you think of influencers in the hobby and how they should behave, I guess, is the question? Yeah, I think definitely it's new and it's different than stocks. I think the big thing is just being transparent, right? Like, I'm going to talk about this card. I might as well just say that I have them, right? Like, if I said this card is undervalued and then meanwhile I have like 100 of them, right? And then I just like sell them right back into the market. I, I think then, then you're not being authentic, Right. And so just being very real about like what the purpose that you're trying to do, like why, why are you talking about this card, right? And so I think just on knowing that like in, in the stock world, you have to disclose, right? You're an owner of this company. And so similar here, like I think people who are influencers have to understand their responsibility. There's a social responsibility to the community. Like you can say one thing and the, the market will change, right? And I think with so many people out there who are trying to get into it, you, you don't want to be the one that's taking advantage of them. So just be authentic. I think that's probably it. And there are going to be people who are authentically trying to take money from people, and hopefully those people are ones that don't get, don't stay along, don't stay in the in this in the community for for a long time. Cage, are you? Are, do we have yep. jaded Cage this week, or do we have positive Cage? So you're you're a mirror uh, you of know, the hobby, you know. We got a little bit of both, right? I mean, we got we're coming off of some auctions this past weekend with you know some continued price corrections. You know, some, yeah, uh, what did you guys think of that, the la that last auction? Um, you know, if I'm being honest with you, Lior, I mean, I love hearing the 192% over five years. I love that. But, you know, part of me is, you know, I sit here and I say, wow, this guy must be some sort of a magician or, you know, he's really doing his research. I mean, I, I, I know there are great returns in the market and I know there are great returns to, to be had. But, you know, I am also a believer in this thing called what goes up must come down at least to some extent. And, and look, if you're in, in investing in blue chips uh, like you are, right, if you pull, I say this almost every episode now, if you pull that camera back wide enough and you look at the chart, the chart is going to go up. If you want to skew the numbers, you want to tell a different story, you want to look at it with much you know, more narrow eye, you, know, you can see a chart that right now for the last couple of months is going down. But you have yeah. to remember, if you pulled a couple of months before that, the chart was significantly going up, right? So, you know, over the last six months, we're talking up. Over the last three months, we're talking down, but that's because the three months before that were up. So, so you know, what do I think? I think that there are definitely some cards last night that sold for significantly less than what they had been selling for a month or two prior. Um, there are cards out there that are going to make headlines and scare people. But you have to remember, guys, listening to this, and Leo, I'd love for you to comment on this too. Um, when you get when you talk about real scarcity. Right, and this is what you're dealing. You're talking about cards, but there's not a lot of them. You know, handful of them out there. Right, the pricing is going to change depending upon two people bidding up a card. One person who's going to want to spend the money on that card at that particular moment, right? And and you know, to have a valuation of that card based on one auction sale in a year does not necessarily mean that that's what that card would sell for if it sells again. And, and the, the best example of it is we just saw, I'm not completely analogous because I think one was like an eight and a half with a nine and one was like an eight with a 10, the Brady uh, contenders autograph, right? I think one sold with, I think it was an eight and a half card grade or an eight card with a nine. I, I forget exactly which one it was, but they were comparable. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Like, right. Like two two point two million, and then the same card sold for like a million dollars less. Like the month after, same card. And like, I thought, you know, I thought, well, no, not a month. It was like three days after. Three, a couple days, right? Exactly. Yeah. A days and after. I thought the second one was the better card. I think the second one had a better auto grade, but worse subgrades and worse overall grades on the card condition. I mean, negligible. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess what's really negligible when you talk about like that card. And yeah. it's a million dollars difference. But, but what that shows you is that the first time around, that card hadn't been around in that kind of grade available for sale in forever. And there were two people who got it. Once that top person was taken out of the equation, 
what was yeah. left, the second highest bidder who didn't have anybody competing with him and got the card for a million dollars less. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You have to, you have to realize that, you know, and, and it's, it's, listen, just because somebody's paying, you know, $3 million for a card today doesn't mean that it's $3 million in a week if the same card comes up, right? So, yeah. I mean, any concern when you see something like that for the cards you have in your collection, well, scarcity-wise? Yeah, I mean, without going too much, I, I have, I, I'm very careful about buying cards that I think the market demand, right, is very thinly traded. I, I think you said a lot of important things that I would just iterate. One is, People only talk about the winners. I've lost a lot of money on cards too, right? In aggregate, I've made more than I've lost, but it's not every single card that I have purchased, I have made money on. It's I've, important, I've, guys. It's very important. Yeah. A lot of people won't admit this. So, so let's keep preach, Lior. Go for it. And I think the, the hardest part is knowing when to get out of a card, right? Like a lot of us have this mentality, like I bought the card, I need to sell it for more. And I think really good traders, I mean, I learned this on Wall Street, is like you, know, you need to know when to cut your losses, Right. And so that, that's something that's, I think, really important. And I do think it's humbling. Like the people who stay in, even though cards go down, right? That, that, those are the most telling times about the actual industry, right? Like stocks don't just go up, right? Top shot doesn't go straight up. And so I think these are the days that actually is going to test out the market, like our actual like market dynamics really well, right? It's okay for card prices to go down as long as there's a reason for it, right? Like the supply demand or is it the player? I think as long as we can start those functions start being logical and rational because at the end of the day, these are, I, I see every card as a bet. It's a vehicle to make a bet that you are, you're saying like when I, when you buy Luka Doncic for $650,000, what you are betting on is that the Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic will win championships and when will win MVPs. And if he doesn't, that price needs to go down. And if that price does not go down, then something I, I always question the market because it can, what will make a card go down? Right. And so I think some of these things are, are really great because it's, there's, it shows that there's rational decision-making within these cards. The demand is actually a function of something. So the thing I like to layer on this, and it kind of ties in the last two points you were making, right? The bets on the cards and the card supply and demand, as well as the, the influencers in the hobby. And, you know, the, I use the word influencer pretty broadly, right? Because now anybody can be an influencer. You turn on Instagram and you got somebody putting up a chart and somebody talking about a card and somebody putting a video up about a card and, you know, somebody lighting a card on fire and somebody eating cards and whatever the heck is going on, you know? So, so I, my favorite story is, you know, I mean, let's, my favorite card, the Jordan PSA 10, right? There are people out there now saying, you know, it's the demise of the hobby. It's the downfall of the hobby. Look at what happened. That card is down 50% from where it was in its highs. And they don't tell the whole story. They don't tell it's only down 50% from its highs, but it's also up 100% from where it was to start the year. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it really is. You have to be careful, you know, in, the, in, in where you get your story from, right? I mean, yeah, isn't yeah. that like a, a big part of what we're doing here, right? Like everybody has kind of like their, their motive with these things, right? And, and, you know, one person will tell the story one way, another person will tell it another. It's the same cards, the same thing, but you could read it and be like, whoa, you know? So I guess it's the same as stocks, right? You know, somebody's shorting a stock and they're paying somebody out there to say how terrible the stock is. You got some other yeah. broker, some other trade desk that's high on it. And they got somebody talking about how it's going to go to the moon at the next earnings. So, you know, it's funny where our hobby has become because you just be, hey, I like that guy. Let me collect him. But now yeah. it's you can't you can't escape it, right? I mean, it's you know people are posting what they want to post <laughs> depending upon where they sit on it. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that, man? Do you think that changes? You think that that ramps up with the values? You think it's you know? I, I think it will. It can go away slowly. Like what I've noticed is that we don't have a true efficient market right now. Like I remember when the. One Jordan was going for like $750,000 on an auction, but then literally there was a buy it now on eBay for like $500,000, right? That does not make sense to me, right? If yep. somebody is, that means that there's another dynamic at play because people are smart, right? And it, for me, when that happens, it's signaling that they don't, no one believes that that's a real price, right? And so my hope is that in the next coming months, the market becomes a lot more efficient. And within that efficiency, you can't tell stories. Right, your stories can't inflate in like they can't influence the card prices that much. But until then, it, it some of these are very thinly traded. The information, like you and I, might have more information than other people, and that needs to go away. Right, we need to all have we need to all know what are the main auction houses. Where can I get these cards? And I think again, we talked about it with more money coming into the system on the angel, like on the funding side of things. 
more tools will be built so that you can say, hey, I know exactly where everything is. But until then, you're going to find people who are going to take advantage of that, right? And, and so that's the unfortunate part of any market dynamic. If you have more information than someone else, you're using it to your advantage. And that's, what, that's what the influencers are doing. They know something that the people they are talking to do not. Gems only eight. You're Kobe collector. Talk to us about Kobe cards because Kobe's this interesting icon, hero, role model for so many in the hobby. Uh, it's possible that he becomes the logo of the NBA. Nothing he's going to do is going to discredit his um, legacy. And his cards have gone through the roof. But I personally believe there's dramatically more upside for someone like him versus uh, some other players. But there's so many of his cards made. And there's so many of his autographs. And, you know, there's the Panini autographs, his upper deck, etc. Can you give us a crash course of Kobe cards, how you understand them, how you view them, how you look at it? this one's iconic versus this one's overproduced? And you dropped a little nugget there that Luke and Nature's listening to this for an hour, and they, you had to know I was coming back to this. You said you don't own one of his 96 chromes because it's, quote, not his best card. So there was yeah. no way I was letting you leave here without you answering what is his best card. So answer the question. You like the recall page? Yeah, I love it. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So, so, okay. Kobe Bryant in general, the market. So when I look at players, there's active players and then there are the non-active players. And within the non-active players, I think Kobe Bryant is unique because there's literally no data that can come out off the court now that can change Kobe Bryant. Right. So that information yep. is static and that is very different than any other player. Right. I always use like Dwayne Wade, like, David said the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Like Dwayne Wade right now is somebody who is not playing, but his brand is increasing. And that's why I think his, his, his values are going up. So it's important to know the different categories because it shows the different types of risk, right? Active players in the NBA, they can get injured, they can get traded. Those changes to their values. That cannot happen for Kobe Bryant right now. And so the supply for Kobe Bryant cards is fixed. And the only thing that basically is changing is the demand of Kobe Bryant, right? So that market is super stable and there's only like, we can only measure it on one dimension, which is very, very interesting, right? So if we can measure the demand of Kobe Bryant, you can literally predict where the card prices are going to go. So that's kind of why I like Kobe Bryant. It feels very logical to me. I can measure the data or the sentiment around Kobe Bryant. And I think, again, the big thing for me is people who collected Kobe Bryant or watched him in 1996, now they're getting the disposable income they want something from Kobe Bryant. They want something to remember. So I think the demand for Kobe Bryant is only going to continue for the next, I will call it uh, 25 years from 2003 would be the next wave where it's going to stop, right? Until then, it's going to be the Kobe Bryant era. So uh, 2028. Yeah. So until then, I'm going to be buying like Kobe Bryant. Now, his best card. So his best card has to be a rare card. So that's why it can't be the 1996 uh, refractor. I, I think scarcity is the most important thing. So I would peg it to a card that's super rare. So it could be the green PMG, uh, might be one of his best cards. I, I have, I think one of his other really crazy cards, which is the 2008 tops Chrome, uh, super fractor, the one with Kobe and guarding LeBron James. I think that's just an, an iconic set, an iconic photograph. And there's only one of one. Um, so I would argue it's probably one of those, one of those two. Probably 2012 Prism. We could probably throw into that category for talking about scarcity, right? Gold Prism. If there was a black Prism that year, it would have been it, right? Um, and so those are the dimensions that I look at somebody's best card. What is the most rare card of an iconic set? So it's got to be like Topps Chrome or Prism. It's got to be a Super Fractor or Black Prism. I love it. Space, love it. Space Jam to the trailer. Thumbs up or thumbs down? You know, sometimes trailers don't say everything about the movie. I want the movie to be good. So even though I thought the trailer was probably a 6 out of 10, I'm going to say 10 out of 10 just so that I can put it out into the world. Like we, all, we all want it to be an awesome movie. No one wants it to flop, right? The big man with the CAGE over there wants it to flop. No, yeah, him dude, and LeBron son, are not seeing eye to eye since... My son wants to see it, man. My son, I, I want the movie to be good. I have no problem with LeBron. I got some top shot money in LeBron. Hey, now, I don't want him to go down. Come on now. I want everybody, <laughs> I want everybody to be making money. So, so Leo, LeBron, LeBron's the GOAT? I'm a Kobe guy through and through. I, right. no, matter, no matter, LeBron can win 15 more MVPs, and I'll still say Kobe. It's just because I grew up My watching one beat. 
It's the argument that you make through generations, right? Cage is the Jordan guy. My one beef with LeBron, if you watch the Lakers when LeBron's gone, or you watch any of his teams when LeBron's not playing, they always play so poorly. And you could say, okay, maybe his rosters are just not that good and he's that great. But I would argue that a true leader, a true player makes teammates around him better. And over his career, I personally, from watching the games, haven't seen LeBron be the guy that makes his teammates better. So when that he's not playing, he's injured, he can't they're still performing. They get crushed when he's gone. And there's something to that that rubs me the wrong way. I, I think the other thing for me is the mentality, that Mamba mentality, like, really, really hit me hard when I was young. And then the other thing, like, I don't know about you guys, I play basketball. When I take something and I'm throwing it out in the trash, I'm not saying LeBron, right? I'm saying Kobe, right? And so, like, you go around asking people, and I don't see many people, you know, throwing something out and saying, like, LeBron, right? I see more Curry than I see LeBron. So there's something about, about that that – it's not. It's not only about what you do on the court. It's what you do off the court too. Well, you know what? So, so when I come, if, if I'm sitting in my office and I need something thrown out and I want to yell LeBron, I yell LeBron, and then I pass it over to Danny Green, and he can throw it into the garbage. <laughs> no. No. no, no, no. Well, right. What would you actually? Who would you actually say if you were throwing something into the game? Whose name are you shouting? Kobe. All right, so I like I'm, uh, you can't tell because you can only see my head here, but I am in fantastic shape. So when I throw things in the garbage, I do a turnaround jumper and say Patrick Ewing. <laughs> That's it. I, I do no. I I, I don't. I don't even know. I don't. Know. Too athletic. I, I have to walk over to the garbage and make a noise and like leap, bend over like I'm not the man I used to be. You know the back creaks and stuff like. I, uh, I'm not. I'm not you guys. I'm not throwing garbage at it because I'm gonna miss more often than not. That I gotta walk over and bend over and try to pick it up, and you know, it's just it's too much for me. I just call, hey kids, come throw this out for me. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> I think I want to create a three-on-three tournament. I want to create a three-on-three tournament, a you know, a card show or in the national or something like that. A three-on-three basketball tournament for charity. People in the hobby, most of them play. I think it'd be super fun. Sasha Tomadon, if I'm going to LA, we're ready, ready to play one on one, right? We set that up for a Luca Prism. Oh yeah, it's online. Lior, if I come to the Bay Area, can can I count on you for a game of hoops? I will play. I will. I, how tall? We can't see how tall each other are. That's the only thing. But shooting wise, five ten, five ten. All right, shoot. I'm I'm five seven and three quarters. But shooting wise, I think I could beat anybody. That's that's Listen, my life. Yeah. I should be anyone's first pick because I get six fouls and I know how to use them. That's it. <laughs> Nobody wants to play against me. It, it would be a game together. Come into the paint. Come into the paint. Attack a shack time. Let's go. Oh, <laughs> it would be cool, right? Leor, this was a blast. You know, we were – what are we? We had 30 minutes budgeted. By the way, your team, whoever's on that team, super responsive, really good. Jack, Claire, the whole team, uh, shout out to them for setting this up. I really appreciate their help. We were slated for 30 minutes, man. This has gone over an hour. I'm grateful to make a connection. I think our audience is going to love this episode. So appreciate you so much, man. Yeah. And for anyone who's trying out only alt, if you have any problems, just reach out directly to me at Leora at only too. So happy to talk to anybody about the product. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. Beautiful. Thanks, Leor. We appreciate your time. man. Thank you for spending some time with us on another episode of the Lucas tigers and bronze. Oh my podcast. Um, do us a favor and like, subscribe. Now, you know what? Don't just like and subscribe. Everybody does that. If you like us, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies, tell everybody. And uh, we hope you got something from spending some time with us today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.